Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, author Ben Yagoda joins Nate to talk about his book, The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley and the Rebirth of the Great American Song. In this episode, Ben and Nate discuss the golden age of American song when writers like Cole Porter and George Gershwin wrote songs that worked on Broadway, on the radio, in dance clubs, and as source material for great jazz, and how that era ended after World War II. It wasn't rock and roll that almost killed Frank Sinatra's career, it was Columbia producer Mitch Miller. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to Let It Roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Ben Yagoda, the author of The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley, and The Rebirth of the Great American Song. Ben, welcome. Thanks so much, Nate. And thank you for writing this book. I really enjoyed it. I learned a ton about a period of musical history that, to me, has kind of been dark-starred. I, I, I did not know much about this pre-rock and roll, post big band era and i found your book really informative what what inspired you to write this book well um it's partly related to what you just said um i'm i'm a, interested in music i guess obviously and i was looking around for a book subject and i'm a big fan like many people of the so-called great american songbook the uh uh era in which composers like Cole Porter and Johnny Mercer and Rogers and Hart and et cetera, et cetera, ruled the roost. Um, uh, it, it turns out that there are so many fans and therefore there have been already a good many books uh, about that subject. So writing about that per se didn't seem like such a good idea, but it, I sort of stumbled on, um, as you say, this era after the heyday of the Great American Songbook, um, the conventional wisdom, it seemed to me, was that rock and roll came in and, and you know, swiped uh, attention and uh, prominence in music away from, from this earlier Tin Pan Alley era. Um, but the truth turned out to be more complicated. And I think um, the thing that really got me 
started was I was reading some books and I came upon a reference to this lawsuit that uh, a bunch of these older composers uh, drafted against all the major radio networks and the major recording uh, labels um, in the late 40s. And they felt that there was conspiracy that their songs weren't being played on the radio. And really, that wasn't true at all. Um, things had Many things had changed to the detriment of their kind of music, but they were so baffled by it that they felt that there was a conspiracy and went to the courts. So that really was the thing that got me started to try to figure out what exactly had happened, what really was happening in that period. And uh, you ask a, a few questions in the in the preface to the book. Um, you, you call the book, uh, you say it has some elements of a nonfiction mystery. And, and you ask, what causes an artistic phenomenon, such as the body of standards of the 20s through the 40s? And so let's start there. Like, what did cause this burst of creativity? Because, you know, like you, I've, I'm a student of music and I've, you know, the Great American Songbook is not something I came to naturally as a Gen X rock and roller, but I... I you know, heard about Frank Sinatra and started learning about Cole Porter and the Gershwins. But then you go back a little further and there's this immense drop off in quality of songwriting. You know, if you go back before the great, you know, you go back from the thirties into the teens and there's this enormous drop off in the quality of songs. And then again, into the fifties, there's a big drop off in the quality of pop songs. What caused this to happen? Why was there the sudden burst of creativity in the thirties? Yeah. Um, by the way, first of all, I just want to correct uh, an error I made about this lawsuit. I think I said late 40s. It was really 1952, um, just, just to be accurate about it. Well, you know, to answer your question, I really wish the phrase perfect storm weren't a cliche because I would say it was a perfect storm, but um, it is, so, so I won't. And I'll just say that there were a lot of different factors that came together. Um, to create this this body of work, and, and I'm convinced that one of them was pure chance. That um, you know, why were there uh, such great artistic geniuses in Renaissance Florence? Well, a lot of things, but one of the things was just these geniuses happened to be born <laughs> in roughly the same time and roughly the same place. Uh, and um, not only were they born uh, and grew up. In, in, in contiguousness to each other, but they were inspired by each other, um, competed with each other, fed off each other. And a similar thing was happening specifically in New York um, in, in the first part of the 20th century. So all these people, um, uh, Irving Berlin, George and Ira Gershwin, Harold Arlen, Richard Rogers, Loren Hart, Lorenz Hart, Oscar Hammerstein, um, all were coming up in roughly the same time. And it was just an amazing flowering of genius. And then other people from other parts of the country came to New York, like Cole Porter and Johnny Mercer and Harry Warren. Um, and, and it was just this ferment of activity. Uh, so that was one thing that was going on. A couple of other factors I'll mention. Uh, one is technological. So I, I think you mentioned in your intro that um, the earlier period before this flowering, so roughly the 
1890s through the 19-teens. Um, that, that was the, the uh, flowering of, of Tin Pan Alley as an institution. And Tin Pan Alley is just a term that more broadly is, is used to refer to popular songwriting. But specifically, it started as a reference to a particular street in Manhattan in New York City where the music publishers were all located in the in the West 20s in New York. And uh, in, in this period, music publishing was the key part of the popular music business. The people who literally published the sheet music on, on which the songs uh, were written. Uh, this was before radio, before streaming, of course, before television, before even recordings. And the way songs were disseminated was that... Uh, the, these companies would have staff songwriters and they would churn out these songs and uh, song pluggers, which were the people, mostly men or maybe all men, would go and demonstrate them in department stores and music stores and in front of orchestras to try to see which ones were more popular and plug the ones that were published. And um, families, people would, would buy the sheet music and would play them around the piano at home. So most middle class families had a piano, had someone who could play the piano and everyone would sit around singing it. So a song like, you know, Let Me Call You Sweetheart or The Sidewalks of New York. Um, these songs that are lovely uh, songs that seem very nostalgic today, but they were simple songs. They kind of had chorus after chorus after chorus. Yeah. Um, people, they weren't hard to sing, they weren't hard to play, and, and that was the nature of, of the pop in music at that time. Well, with the technology of recording and then radio and microphones, um, songs began to be geared not so much for the lowest common denominator of, of you know, mother or sister playing the piano, but of, of really uh, excellent musicians and great singers like Bing Crosby and later Frank Sinatra and Billie Holiday, um, who could express the nuances and sometimes sophistication and complexity of songs, a little bit more difficult for um, the family members to play. And then the final element that I'll mention is the beginning of jazz, um, which was sophisticated, uh, complex, different harmonies, rhythms um, that African-Americans uh, brought to the music. And it was, there was sort of a virtuous circle going on. Uh, these composers, especially people like um, George Gershwin and Harold Arlen, but also Cole Porter and Richard Rodgers in Berlin and others, really were influenced and inspired by, by jazz. And then the other element that happened is once they wrote the songs, um, jazz musicians and improvisers like Louis Armstrong and, and later uh, Teddy Wilson and Coleman Hawkins and Billie Holiday as a vocalist uh, interpreted the songs and, and created something new and wonderful out, out of them. Um, so all, the, all these things and other things as well were going on uh, at the time of this sort of golden age, which I would date from maybe the middle 1920s to the, the middle 1940s, uh, with some good stuff going on before and after. But those two decades were the really uh, the heart of this period. And I want to play uh, one of the 
classic might be, I'm not sure this is the greatest song from this period, but it was one of the most commercially successful and sort of gives us a segue into the, the following era. And this is, of course, Bing Crosby's version of Irving Berlin's White Christmas, which was one of the biggest selling records of all time. So let's hear a little bit of Der Bingle doing White Christmas. And that was Bing Crosby singing Irving Berlin's White Christmas. And so, Ben, this this is a song that, written by one of the great stalwarts of the Great American Songbook, performed by one of the great interpreters, and yet kind of points to sort of the decadence of, of the Great American Songbook. And and what what was it that caused, the, talk about a perfect storm, there was a perfect storm of commerciality, commercial success here, and also sort of set a precedent for hokey Christmas tunes. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you meant by the word, the word decadence. Well, just the, the ending of the era, sort of, of the rot beginning to show that the, the great composers are not necessarily at the peak of their form, and certain trends that come out in the, in the following era are, are present here. Right. You know, it's interesting. Um, I'm not sure I would necessarily agree with you, or at least maybe not think of it quite that way. I mean, to me, when I hear uh, White Christmas, uh, it, it, it more calls to mind that earlier era that we were talking about, that let me call you sweetheart era than, than what came later. I mean, I think it is in its way, a great song. It doesn't have those sophisticated jazz-like qualities that I associate with, to me the, with the best of the great American songbook. Um, but it, it sort of mines a vein of sentimentality and not necessarily in a bad way, but um, sentimentality that runs through uh, American music and probably the music of other countries, certainly the music of other countries as well that you saw before that. Uh, and during that era, and definitely not all of the of the songs of that of that golden era were great, wonderful songs. There were sentiment, there was novelty numbers, there was silliness, all sorts of stuff, and that you you see today as well. And you know, sentiment sells. Um, it's interesting. I was uh, I'm actually taking a class in my local adult education. Uh, really wonderful class about World War II, um, mostly about the military aspects. But last night, the teacher was talking about the, the cultural aspects of the home front. And um, wh when we got into World War II, uh, the sense was that what was called for in terms of songs were uh, kind of fight songs and um, you know, ASCAP, the Association of Songwriters, and the U.S. government encouraged these songs. And I just have this page in my book. There are numbers like uh, Yankee Doodle Ain't Doodling Now. Uh, well, Irving Berlin wrote a song called We'll Wipe You Off the Map, Mr. Jap. Um, coming in on a wing and a prayer, pr praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. But these songs weren't really popular. Uh, the more popular ones were... The nostalgic songs, um, 
playing to sentiment. And uh, White Christmas, in fact, was written as a song for directed towards the soldiers overseas who couldn't experience the White Christmas that Irving Berlin did. And, and another example of that is um, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, wonderful song from uh, the 1944 film Meet Me in St. Louis. And a, a lot of other of these sort of sentimental songs were the most popular World War II or war-related songs, much more so than than the Marshall fighting songs. So I, I, I kind of tend to give uh, White Christmas a pass, um, you know, if only for its unbelievable success. If, if I'm not mistaken i believe it is the most considered the most successful recording of all time well over 100 million copies sold in many versions crosby's being the best so let's uh let's give at least one cheer for white christmas oh i mean i definitely picked it because i enjoy the 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 music i mean that's one thing about this era is i want to pick songs that are representative but not really i don't want to play how much is that doggy in the window necessarily <laughs> so i'm trying to cherry pick but um you know but but you talk in the book about how this inspires a whole trend of lesser songs that become christmas staples and and you've got some pretty interesting anecdotes about the guy who wrote uh, rudolph the red-nosed reindeer and well, and the amount of money he made. Yeah, do, uh, do you have that reference there in front of you? Because I don't have it in my in at the top of my mind right now. Um, yeah, I can. I can. That was John Parks, I believe, right? Who? Yes. Sort of. Uh, you know, <laughs> I didn't mention it, um, but it, it's it's very no, well known that the. Um, I, I think it's safe to say majority, if not significant majority, of. Uh, of, of songwriters uh, from the 20s on were Jewish, um, Jewish Americans in, in the great songwriters and the not so great songwriters alike up through the 50s. And uh, it, it's sort of ironic or funny how many Jewish songwriters wrote Christmas songs, including Irving Berlin and Johnny Marks. Yeah, and, and he came back to the well repeatedly, wrote "Rocking Around the Christmas Tree," "Holly Jolly Christmas," and multiple other ones. And you and you um, point out that in a single year in the 1980s, uh, Rudolph alone had made him six hundred thousand dollars, and that he probably netted you know eight hundred thousand. So there's big money in songwriting in this period uh, for those who are adept and and skilled and lucky. And, you know, Marx is definitely one of them. And I, I think your point about World War II is something I've thought a lot about reading your book that there was not just in pop songs, but also in country and rhythm and blues and other areas, there was a decomplexification of music across the board in this period. I mean, you had swing being replaced by jump blues. You had the sophisticated Western swing and country replaced by Hank Williams' three chord tunes. Yeah. You know, and then you've got Mitch Miller uh, the head of production at Mercury Records and then Columbia coming in with something that's, you know, it's frequently called PAP or Pablum, but it seems like Americans, uh, it's almost like there's a national case of PTSD and people wanted something really pleasant and gentle. And, and it was a return to the sort of the sentimentality of the songs of the 1890s in a lot of respects. Um, I mean, and let's bring up the bad guy, Mitch Miller. He's frequently you know, Frank Sinatra and others have, have knocked him 
mercilessly for for his lack of taste and and the way he changed uh, records from something that captured the sound to a new production. But isn't there kind of a case, a positive case for Mitch Miller to be made to some extent? Well, yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Mitch Miller and, um, well, uh, can I ask uh, roughly what your age is, Nate? I'm 50 years old. Okay. So I'm guessing that for you, um, Mitch Miller is not a... uh, common sort of household name. Am I right on that? Before- Absolutely. I, I first heard about Mitch Miller when I was a high school kid learning about classic rock and reading rock critics, and Mitch Miller would show up as the bad guy, you know, okay. one, of the, one of the old guys who hated rock and roll, and they'd talk about his corny sing-along with Mitch albums. Um, <laughs> but this whole controversy, the fact that that you know he was producing Frank Sinatra during the you know Frank's lowest ebb commercially and artistically that was all news to me and I'd certainly never been forced to hear how much is that doggy in the window or mule train um right. you know or any of these other songs that uh and you know and I was completely oblivious of say Johnny Ray who was probably the biggest teen pop phenomenon between Sinatra and Elvis and yet completely forgotten today um you know so so yeah, Mitch Miller is somebody I'm completely learning about through effort. Like I'm, I'm seeking out information about Mitch Miller rather than having him imposed on me. Yeah, yeah, the the Mitch Miller student. That's that's a rare thing. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm in my 60s, and for people of my age, maybe a little bit younger, certainly older, Mitch Miller was a really famous guy um, for what you you mentioned his sing along with Mitch kind of franchise um he, he he was um he was an interesting figure who i guess as i was starting writing the book he passed away so i, I did at a very uh elderly age i didn't get a chance to interview him but reading his his obituaries and hearing um hearing about him on, on public radio uh, really whetted my appetite, and he was a fascinating figure. Um, so people of my era knew this sing-along with Mitch, which was uh, Mitch was a man with a goatee and would stand in front of this large all-male chorus, uh, waving his arms back and forth, and had these sing-alongs to old, old songs, um, uh, you know, Yellow Rose of Texas and these early Tin Pen Alley songs, and they were phenomenally successful. Um, but what I learned about, what I learned in, in reading those obituaries and later in the research is, as, as you suggested, before that, he was uh, an enormously powerful figure in American popular music from the late 40s on through the early 60s. Um, before that, he was a first-class classical musician, an oboist, um, who sort of came into pop music um, in a roundabout way. Uh, but what his position was the head of um, pop music for Columbia Records, which was the biggest record company in the country in the 50s, and he was in charge of all their singles. Uh, the singles were the uh, 45 RPM records that, that had just one song in the front, one song in the back, and that was the prime moneymaker you know, way, way after the sheet music era uh, of this particular era. And, you know, um, as you say, he's often shown as the villain of the piece. And he did, he produced a lot of uh, 
uh, of Pap. I think I might have a list of, of some of his songs. You know, Come On to My House, um, uh, How Much Is That Doggy in the Window, Mule Train, um, songs that, you know, were not on the quality level of the that earlier era that we were talking about. They were not... Um, they were not sophisticated in melody or harmony. What they were sophisticated in was production value. So he would bring in all sorts of sound effects and interesting different instrumentation. And he was the first record producer in the way we think of that job today. Um, it, it was commented on, about him at the time and afterwards that part of his uh, sort of the plus and the minus of him was that he didn't really like pop music. He, he the only music that he thought was of great value was classical. So he viewed it as a commodity and he tried to make productions that people would buy. And he did. He had his finger on the pulse of the public for that certain period. And, you know, just to just to conclude this this little uh, uh, speech on Mitch Miller, I, I think, you know, your your comment about the PTSD is definitely apt that um, uh, America had gone through a long depression, a long taxing war, um, and was ready for, I don't know, uh, relaxation, um, sort of soft core entertainment, nothing that was too challenging. Um, and, and, And Miller was aware of that. His songs were that he produced were, were sort of ditties and with, that were kind of fun to listen to and didn't tax the listener very much at all. And I want to play one of those uh, tunes. And this is kind of an exception to that in the, in the Miller of this is uh, Johnny Ray's whiskey and gin, which Miller tries to claim is the first rock and roll song, which pretty specious claim, but it, there are rock elements and gospel elements in this. And so let's hear it. Johnny Ray, whiskey and gin. And that was the forgotten Johnny Ray, who for a brief time was triggering teen hysteria in the early 50s at a level not seen since Sinatra and not to be seen again until Elvis. Produced by Mitch Miller, what was the deal with Johnny Ray? Why was he so big for such a brief period, and why is he so forgotten today? Yeah, those are good questions. I'm not sure of the answer to them. Um, he, I guess part of it was that he had a fairly brief period of... Um, of of being associated with uh, producers and record companies and writers that 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 put him forward in a good way and he created a sensation and I think the your comment about prefiguring Elvis is a good one um, you know he was like Elvis he was he was a white kid who sounded black or so many people felt and. You know, I, I guess, what does that mean to sound black? It, you know, you, we could have a whole episode on that. But one of the things that people saw in Elvis and, and Johnny Ray earlier was a sort of raw emotion. Um, uh, 
uh, not polished, uh, not sophisticated, uh, sensual, maybe sexual. Um, and that sort of opened people's eyes. I mean, that stuff kind of thing had been around, um, uh, largely in, in records made by African-Americans, so-called race records. But, uh, in, in that period, late forties and early fifties, they weren't, they still weren't getting wide airplay. So many white Americans had never heard that sort of music. And Johnny Ray was, was an introduction, uh, uh, to it for, for a lot of people. Yeah. And, and, and a fascinating character and, uh, as sort of an exception to the role of the PTSD. I mean, this this is somebody whose who's whole shtick is overwrought emotion, and, and it's it's almost a parody of emotionality, a, a, a real contrast to Patti Page and, and Rosemary Clooney and the type of stuff uh, that was coming out. Uh, you also talk about one aspect that you, that you draw out is, as part of this feud between ASCAP, which was the Songwriters Association founded by, you know, the Jerome Kearns and, and over in Berlin's and BMI, which I was uh, ignorant of the fact that that was founded by the broadcasting uh, radio networks, but it fig- it included because ASCAP was so exclusive, and it wasn't just that they excluded poor quality writers; they excluded whole genres and races of writers. They excluded all the rhythm and blues and blues writers. They excluded all the country writers, and part of the Mitch Miller phenomenon was bringing country songs into the pop world, you know, having Patty Page sing uh, Pee Wee King's Tennessee Waltz or Tony Bennett doing uh, Hank Williams' Cold, Cold Heart. Comment on that a little bit. And, and what was it about country music? And folk had a big boom in this period with the Weavers. What, what was going on with that? Well, you know, um, drawing back a bit, uh, I think you and I have both been talking about uh, this period as, you know, in, in sort of negative terms. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the song that's the poster child for how, how bad it was, which was how much is that doggy in the window by, by, uh, Patty page. Um, but on the other hand, there was, a uh, a lot of good to it as well. And, um, you mentioned ASCAP, and that's the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, founded in, I believe, 1914. And that was the organization that, up through the uh, early 40s, controlled all popular songwriting. Um, for a song to be first you know, published in cheap music and subsequently to be recorded, it had to have an ASCAP. Uh, by a major label, it had to have an ASCAP writer. And ASCAP was restrictive in its membership policies, uh, was definitely not um, open to people outside that New York, L.A. uh, uh, area of Broadway, Hollywood, Tin Pan Alley. So people like W.C. Handy, blues writers, and um, Gene Autry, had a country western writer and performer had a terrible time getting membership in ASCAP. Um, ASCAP also uh, was originally founded as a way for songwriters and publishers to get money from public performances of their songs. Uh, when radio came around, they started acting to get money from the radio networks for their songs. 
And um, through the 20s and 30s, charged the networks more and more and more and more of a license fee each year until finally in 1941, the networks balked and said, no, we're not going to play ASCAP music anymore. And as you mentioned, they founded their own rival licensing organization, Broadcast Music Incorporated, BMI, uh, both of which still exist today, and started signing up people like Hank Williams and W.C. Handy and Gene Autry. And that kind of music started being played on the radio for the very first time. That uh, ASCAP boycott only lasted a year or so, but it really opened up um, popular music. People in the urban areas started hearing this music that had previously only been played in in rural uh, areas. And uh, country music, rhythm and blues uh, started becoming part of the mix. And, you know, that without question was, was a very good thing. Ultimately would lead to rock and roll. People like Elvis grew up listening to this BMI stuff on the radio. Um, but, you know, in that early, in that sort of 10-year uh, period that I, that I concentrated on between roughly 1945 and 1955, all, all sorts of stuff was on, on, on the radio and was popular. So I'm just looking at the, the Billboard uh, Top 10 of 1951. You know, on there is... Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Cry by Johnny Ray, the number one hit of the year. Cold, Cold Heart by Tony Bennett, this Queens Italian-American singer singing a Hank Williams song. Um, but also Come Out of My House, the novelty number by Rosemary Clooney. Also, what I consider a great number, uh, How High the Moon, Les Paul and Mary Ford taking a Tin Pan Alley classic and kind of giving a wonderful new version to it. Um, so and let's also, talk about. I want to play that one. So let, that's a perfect yep. segue. Let's let's hear it. Uh, this is Les Paul and Mary Ford's "How High the Moon." was Les Paul and Mary Ford doing How High the Moon and it might not sound that way to modern listeners but tell us this was a real technological feat tell us about that well Les Paul the the guitarist uh, and his wife Mary Ford the vocalist uh, Les Paul was uh, in addition to being <clears throat> a great uh, guitar player and virtuoso and and played sort of a weekly gig until not that long ago in, in, into his 90s i think he played and uh pa passed away some time ago but uh was an innovator people who know about the electric guitar know all the things that he created and, and innovations on the instrument but also uh was a great innovator essentially invented uh overdubbing so i don't know how many separate tracks mary ford put down on that song of harmonizing with herself. I think it was eight and people went nuts over it. Uh, it was, it was a sound they hadn't heard before. It, it swang, um, and, uh, great instruments, great vocalizing and just, uh, a great record. And, and 
it's, it's also important to note, I think, that there were no tracks. They weren't using magnetic tape yet at this point. They're they're doing taping from not not even taping, but recording from acetate to acetate. So that so it's a very manual analog process that that later on the Beatles and others would automate to some extent by having magnetic tape and literally having multiple tracks that they could record different things on. But Les Paul is inventing this uh, in a very sort of home cooking way, and uh, and and you know like he brought up with Mitch Miller. This whole idea of creating a rec- recording as a production, a lot of people were resistant to that very concept. So they thought that that was an affront to artistry and, and to music. Well, is, is that so? You know, I don't recall there being uh, that much of a backlash at the time. Although, yeah, now that I think of it, there were a few random comments here and there about um, uh I think there was this one song, um, the the flight of the wild goose. You, I, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Do you, do you know the one I'm talking about? Nate? Yeah, that's the one that Frank Sinatra, when he sort of gets his revenge on Mitch Miller, does a performance wearing a coonskin cap and cracking a whip and 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 honking like a goose. Yeah, yeah, the, the goose honking in that song um, was. Uh, was something that people picked up on and made fun of. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of the anti-Mitch stuff, um, there was a, a little bit of an undercurrent at the time, but a lot of it came later as people were, were telling the story of this of this era. Uh, he, he was, you know, and, and I guess partly also the, the, the lack of criticisms at the time spoke to how powerful he was. I mean, if if a, if, a, if a songwriter wanted to get a Columbia record, it was Mitch's decision. So they weren't going to speak up too loudly. Um, Sinatra uh, was with Columbia in the early 50s, which is kind of the nadir of his career. Um, and they, they sort of parted ways by mutual consent. And of course, he went on to Capitol Records and had his great run in the, in the late 50s and beyond with Capitol. So he was quite content to snipe at Ed Miller and kind of did so probably for the last 40 years of his life. I want to, I want to quote a letter, a contemporary letter that you cited because you're pretty much my only source for this period. So if I'm saying it, I, I'm getting it from you, even if I'm misinterpreting okay. it, but you quote a, a letter from uh, Wilfred Sheed, who was a, a Brit who had spent time growing up in, in America and been a fan of the great American songbook during its golden age in the 30s and 40, early 40s. And he comes back in 1947 and is sort of aghast at uh, the way he's hearing just the same song over and over again. And he does, uh, you quote him as saying, because several of the new hits seem to depend on the latest gimmickry and special effects to celebrate technology more than music. The kid at the piano syncopated everything had died in the war and been replaced by his country cousin. So that's, kind of where I was getting at. And there's a couple other quotes you have in there where people um, are objecting to the whole notion of, of, of a recording as a creation. Yeah, from it's, it's about gimmickry and special effects. Yeah, that's a good quote. Um, yeah, I will say that, well, first of all, just a uh, minor correction, that was from his book, uh, ah. Not a Letter, and that that was one of the books that I encountered that made me decide that the, the, the general topic in Penale had been covered. I, I'll also know that that book came out in the 80s or 1980s or 90s. So this is him looking back on it. Um, uh, 
it'd be interesting if he if there were a contemporaneous letter for for what he was saying. I mean, I'm, I don't have any doubt that that was how he reacted to it. But I think some of his characterization of it came in his consideration of of as the years passed and and looking back on it. Um, that that's always you know uh, one's perspective gets deepened and sharpened and changed when, when one looks back on something from several decades later. Sure. And one thing I wanted to touch on that we haven't was the role of Broadway and Hollywood in this, in both the explosion of creativity in the 20s and 30s, and then how it played into the decline. What changed on Broadway that, um, you know, that's where Showboat came from, and obviously Richard Rogers wrote so much of his best work, but you talk about a, a change from Broadway becoming sort of being being the source of much of the hit parade to segueing into sort of a separate a separate alley, as it were, like where did no longer generate a pop hits. What happened on Broadway that that no longer was a source of of hits? Well, you know what? Um, let me just back up a little bit and uh, talking. We talked earlier about the the factors that that brought this flowering into into play. And uh, we talked about the technological, the jazz, the social, the, the coincidental of all these people. But another one really is institutional. So there was this institution of this uh, popular song business, Tim Penale, but there was also Broadway musical flowering in the teens and 20s and 30s and 40s. And uh, starting in the very late 20s into the 30s, the Hollywood musical. Um, so th- there was a need for high quality songs coming from both Broadway and Hollywood. And, you know, talking about the novelty numbers and the seasonal Christmas songs, the Tin Pen Alley uh, part of it was, was really geared to sort of like the piecework and putting out something and seeing if it'll make a hit. Whereas uh, Hollywood and Broadway, to, to a large extent, we're just looking for great songs that would work in in the show or the movie that was that was that was being uh, produced. So in this golden era, there was sort of a three uh, three legged stool where these great songs were coming from. And and I, and I think I did even a calculation one time um, of a list of the several hundred best songs that are considered in this so-called Great American Songbook. And it was really interestingly roughly even, one-third, 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 one-third Broadway, one-third Hollywood, and one-third um, Tin Pan Alley, the sort of you know one-off songs that, that were put out and recorded by a big band or, or whatever. So um, your question about what happened to Broadway, I kind of feel like, well, actually not much happened to Broadway. Uh, in, in the 40s and 50s, and in fact, Broadway was the one of those, the, the only one of those three legs that was still sort of doing its bit and standing. So you had uh, great shows like, um, you know, Guys and Dolls and My Fair Lady and Pajama Game that would was uh, pr- produce great songs that were recorded as singles and and. Uh, performed by jazz musicians like, uh, you know, uh, If I Were a Bell from Guys and Dolls, Sinatra's song of Luck Be a Lady, uh, I Could Have Danced All Night, uh, Hey There from Pajama Game, etc., all, all of which were hits. So through the 50s, 
I feel that Broadway was the only one that was still kind of doing its part in producing these classic style pop songs, whereas the Tin Pan Alley and Hollywood End were, were falling off. They, they were not, for various reasons, not, not producing that level of song anymore. The one thing, the thing I was trying to get at with Broadway was, the, the, and you talk about it in the book, was the fact that they were becoming more coherent productions and that the artistry of the shows was improving so that they weren't sort of reviews that would just bring in random songs connected by flimsy sketches and dialogue, but that they were integrated with complicated plots. And so you talk about how a lot of the songs now didn't make as much sense outside the context of the play. Um, and that, and that was a factor. And then, and then Hollywood, like you say, the, the Hollywood musical, the original musical kind of dies a slow death um, through the fifties and sixties. But you, we hint around at sort of the happy ending here with the LP. And my introduction to this whole Great American Songbook was basically through Frank Sinatra's Capitol Records. There was a great uh, CD set, triple CD set in the 90s of, of Frank Sinatra at Capitol. And that's where I was first really exposed in depth to the Great American Songbook. And you get the impression listening to Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and Fred Astaire and, and others of these artists and also Miles Davis and Chet Baker and serious jazz musicians, Coltrane, um, that this was art song, you know, that these these are these serious works of art with this great depth. And obviously they are because they can carry, you know, the, the weight of these interpretations and there's so much there to explore for great musicians. But if you go back and listen to the original cast recordings from the 30s, which they didn't really have that concept in, but if you listen to the first recordings of a lot of these songs, they don't sound like art songs. They sound very much like Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. Let's put on a show and, and just kind of having fun with it. And so what happened in the fifties with the LP and Frank Sinatra's escape yeah. from Columbia moved to Capitol that suddenly created this sort of art phenomenon. of the song. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that your term art songs, and I, I, I definitely would not dispute that. I mean, I think of it more in terms of a jazz and there was all through the period um, a tradition among jazz musicians of performing uh, what were called standards. Um, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. A great American song, a, a song that has stood the test of time, that is can 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 stand up to multiple interpretations. You know, a body and soul, for example, by Coleman Hawkins. Um, so. The jazz musicians were, and and you mentioned Miles Davis, My Funny Valentine, and all the standards that he performed. Um, I think what happened in the mid to late 50s is, uh, you know, I'm not sure who I can attribute it to, whether it's Sinatra himself, um, Ella Fitzgerald and her producer, Norman Granz, were part of this. the, the vocalists started, and and technologically, as you say, the LP um, gave uh, a chance for a, uh, a a production, an object that would have a dozen songs with careful jazz-inflected arrangements. Tony Bennett started doing it then. Sarah Vaughan, Mel Torme, um, uh, and Billie Holiday had been had been singing these songs all along. So th- this critical mass of uh, outstanding, sensitive, jazz-appreciating singers and producers and, you know, record executives um, uh, 
came together in the, in this late fifties period and, and, and produced all these great records. And, you know, I think that what, once that happened, that created a sense in the public's eyes that, Hey, there is this canon of, of these great standards. And that, that phrase that I've mentioned a couple of times, great American songbook, you know, obviously it's not an official thing, but that grew out of this period. I I think I tried to trace it and, found that the first use was a Carmen McRae, a, a somewhat later vocalist record she put out in the 60s. And it really caught on. And because it's a thing that people understood um, that, that there's this body of, of great songs. And I think those LPs that, that we've been talking about in the late 50s really was the most important thing in, in starting that, that, that acknowledgement and sense. And let's hear from Frank Sinatra. Uh, Steph, my producer, wants to hear Like Be a Lady tonight, and I'm not going to argue with her. Frank Sinatra, Like Be a Lady. Luck be a lady tonight. Luck be a lady tonight. Luck. If you've ever been a lady to be And that was Frank Sinatra interpreting one of the classics of the Great American Songbook, Look Be a Lady. And that sort of is how the torch was passed, uh, how this music was collected, how the canon was, you know, selected and, and filtered uh, and, and brought forward to future generations. How do you feel about the Great American Songbook in the 21st century? Do you think this stuff is continuing to survive? I mean, we've had Amy Winehouse and other performers that have been interested in it and interpreting it yeah you know um <laughs> in, in a way that's sort of the best and worst thing that happened i mean i think talk about poster child uh, think of rod stewart and his series of records of these standards and uh of, of which let me let me put it diplomatically i'm not a fan especially um it seems like aging rockers uh who want a career move they'll say oh let's do you know Rogers and Hart, where or when, and doesn't really bring too much to the table, usually, in my sense. Um, so, so that's definitely uh, uh, part of, of what's kept it, kept, it, kept it out there. But, you know, I, I'm not sure I, I can really give you a good answer. I mean, I do feel like um, uh, there, there's really strong and good uh, vocalists and, and musicians who are devoted to this to this material. Um, how popular they are, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, they're out there and they're, and they're continuing, um, but they're not, you know, commanding huge uh, arena concerts. Um, I, I think that the older stuff. Is, is still available and still listened to. And, you know, there's, there's streaming services on XM and Jonathan Schwartz, this legendary DJ has his own streaming uh, service, the Jonathan station where this stuff is played all the time. And it's great. Um, it'll never go away. It, it'll be out there in, in some form or other. And, won't won't be the the most popular, but it will stay around. I mean, you mentioned the phrase art songs, and it's you know you couldn't make an analogy to classical classical music that it's in the repertory and will stay there. 
Well, excellent. Thanks so much for being on the show, Ben. And this is Ben Yagoda, author of The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley and The Rebirth of the Great American Song. Thanks again. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when author Mark Blake joins us to discuss Led Zeppelin and the greatest manager in rock history. Side, the Death of Tin Pan Alley and the Rebirth of the Great American Song is available from Riverhead Books and can be found wherever fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.